0: Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper.
1: And I'm Aaron Metzik. How's it going, Katie? I'm well, you? I'm great because we have a great show today. We have Jacob Siegel of Tablet Magazine coming on to talk about his opus, a huge takedown of the whole disinformation racket. And we're going to talk about that. It's a very interesting interview.
0: Yeah, it's great. And he has some really interesting stuff to say about the dun-dun-dun Twitter files.
1: That's right. A hot topic. That ah, we're also getting topic. into today's Thursday throwdown, which you can get if you sign up at usefulidiots.substack.com. That's where we give you your midweek dose of media madness. And this week on the Thursday throwdown, we're getting into that infamous Mehdi Hassan Matt Taibbi interview about the Twitter files. Yeah. Medigate. Medigate. Medi Matt Gate. Yeah. Medi
0: Matt Gate. Medi Matt Gate. Yeah. Medi Matt Gate. And I don't care. Yeah. So that's just yet another reason to join us at usefulidiots.substack.com or usefulidiots.locals.com because we're going to give you an extended interview with Jake where he, he gets a little triggered in a good way. I ask him a question that it's very, you'll see he's very dispassionate as he likes to say. He, he tries to stay dispassionate, but I ask him a question about, I mean, it's not about Hunter Biden's penis, but involves Hunter Biden's penis. And you're definitely going to want to. It's a good penis tease. And you're definitely Mm going to want to see how he responds to that. He basically uh, pushes back against people who say there's no censorship revealed in the Twitter file. So that and uh, is just one of the many reasons you're going to want to join our uh, either Substack or locals.
1: All right, let's get to our four basic food groups. What do we have for Democrats Suck?
0: So for my Democrats Suck, uh, this is a story about the recent decision of a texas judge to ban mefepristone which is a medical abortion medication Uh, more than 50 percent of the abortions that are undergone in the united states are undergone through medication and it's extremely safe and a judge in texas decided to rule that the fda could not approve of this medication even though they have and it's safe His uh, ruling was very legally shaky, as you'll hear in this clip that we're going to play. Now, what's interesting is that some Democrats, including AOC and Ron Wyden, have urged the Biden administration to simply ignore this ruling. That makes sense that Democrats are doing it. The Biden administration will not commit to doing that. But what makes this especially sucky for Democrats is that not only is this call coming from Democrats, it's actually coming from Republicans, including Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace. So let's hear what she had to say on CNN.
2: I think that a judge in Texas should be able to say that an FDA's determination about a drug is invalid.
3: I don't. In fact, when you look at the court case and the ruling here, the judge used a an act or a law from the 1800s that was overturned by the Supreme Court, at least the Supreme Court decided in 1983, over 100 years later roughly, that that uh, law was unconstitutional. And that was the basis for his argument last week. And look, this is an FDA-approved drug. Whether you agree with its usage or not, that's not your decision. That is the FDA's decision on the efficacy, safety, and usage of that particular drug.
2: Do you agree here then with comments from people like your colleague Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez that the Biden administration should ignore this ruling, that the FDA should ignore this
3: ruling? Well, we will, I mean, you know, this is the judicial branch and we have a court system. I, I do think that this is going to be relegated to the courts. There are other lawsuits that are going on right now. I would. This is an FDA approved drug. I, I support the usage of FDA approved drugs, even if we might disagree. Uh, it's not up to us to decide as legislators or even, you know, as the court system that whether or not this is the right drug to use or not, number one. So I agree with ignoring it. At this point, but there are other lawsuits that are happening right now in other states um, as well over this issue. But to, to look at the case itself, when you look at the law that the judge used, an old law that the Supreme Court said was unconstitutional, this thing should just be thrown out, quite frankly. So you think the FDA should ignore this? I would. Yes, I would. This is an issue that Republicans have been largely on the wrong side of. Um, We have, over the last nine months, not shown compassion towards women. And this is one of those issues that I've tried to lead on as someone who's pro-life and just have some common sense. In the state of South Carolina, just a few weeks ago, we had some uh, folks in the state legislature that essentially wanted to execute women who had abortions. So we've got some extreme views on this issue, but 90% of America is somewhere in the middle. And I think that that 90% would be okay with listening to the FDA rather than a judge who used an old law that was determined unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. I think the vast, vast majority of Americans would support that decision.
2: Yeah, and I know you you think that your party has gotten it wrong on abortion, the way that they message yeah. on it. You you think that the House majority yeah. would be bigger if Republicans are better. So what do you what do you say to you know, Texas Republican Tony Gonzalez, who suggested that the Republican-led House should consider defunding some of the FDA's programs if they ignore this court's
3: decision? Well, I mean he's everybody's welcome to their own opinion. I represent a very purple district that is really a bellwether for the rest of the country, and I can tell you far more than the vast majority 60 70% are not of Americans are not going to agree with this decision and there are many pro life people that also while they're pro life they don't want the government to intervene in this radical of a manner and the FDA has a rigorous process that they go through on drug approvals uh, most of the time they get it right when they don't there are lawsuits regarding the efficacy of those drugs and there's already another lawsuit but what this judge did The basis of his ruling, uh, there's really no basis for it because he used a law that the Supreme Court said was unconstitutional. Okay, so again, what we
0: have here is we have Republican Congresswoman outflanking the Biden administration on abortion. And you know what makes this extremely shameful is that she's not even pro-choice. She's actually anti-abortion. She just believes in exceptions. And you know why? Probably one of the reasons that she believes in exceptions is because she herself as a teenager was raped. So I think she understands the stakes of being forced to carry to term a pregnancy. That's the result of rape. And that's what distinguishes her from other Republicans who are more extremists. Now, um, the woman, the CNN uh, anchor interviewing Mace brought up Tony Gonzalez. And if you haven't checked out our Monday morning, which you can find at youtubecom dot slash useful idiots, you may want to check it out because this is a guy who uh, is a Texas congressman who touted himself as being a prolific pro-lifer, as he calls himself, and said that uh, it's a question of states' rights. Then Dana Bash pointed out, well, this is a ruling that would apply on a federal level, so so much for states' rights. And also he said that uh, we should talk about issues that impact everyday people, not abortion. We should talk about other issues that women care about or that are important to women, as if this is one that isn't. So, again, uh, Biden, you should be at least as um, committed to ignoring this ruling as Nancy Mace is.
1: I think Nancy Mace, on top of her own personal experience, also recognizes electorally
0: yes, that this is a
1: loser for the Republicans. He's She's trying to want that. But uh, that's impressive that some, a Republican could speak in such a forceful way. I wouldn't expect that. All right. So for Republicans suck, remember that talk during the midterms about how Republicans were now turning anti-war. Kevin McCarthy said something about, we're not going to write a blank check for Ukraine. Well, never mind all that. Kevin McCarthy is here to assure us now that Republicans are fully on board with not just the Ukraine proxy war, but also uh, maybe a proxy war with China over Taiwan. Uh, so here is Congress member Mike McCall being interviewed by Chuck Todd, and they're going to talk about some recent comments from Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker. I want to play something that uh, Speaker McCarthy said, because he it, it seemed to at least shift a perception of where he is on the issue of Ukraine. Let me play it.
4: I think what's happening in Ukraine is an atrocity, and I think Ukraine, not just Ukraine, the world has to win there. What Russia has done is wrong. In a phrase that I use a blank check, I use that for anything. I look at
1: every dollar uh, of taxpayers that we would use, but the one thing I know that in Ukraine we have to win because it also would uh, save Taiwan at the same time. Uh, Are you reassured now, and should the Ukrainians, should President Zelensky be reassured that House Republicans are not going to stand in the way of more aid to Ukraine?
2: Yeah, I traveled with uh, Kevin, uh, Speaker McCarthy, to Poland, Romania. He's always uh, believed this, felt this way. Uh, When you're over here, Chuck, when you talk to, and I've talked to the the prime ministers in the presence of Japan, you know, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, what's happening in Ukraine uh, will determine what happens uh, in Taiwan and the Pacific. I think the prime minister of Japan going down to Ukraine mm-hmm. to signal uh, their support. And he said himself, what happens in Ukraine today will happen in the Far East tomorrow. I believe the best deterrence uh, to Chairman Xi
1: is a failure for uh, Putin in Ukraine. So that's the key to getting Republicans on board with the proxy war in Ukraine. Just tell them that if the U.S doesn't achieve its goals in Ukraine proxy war, then that will help China. And since Republicans have this real deep hatred of China, that will get them on board with anything, as we're seeing now from Kevin McCarthy, who says we have to win in Ukraine because we have to win against China.
0: Right. It always goes back to that axis of evil.
1: Yeah, that's right. Everything's everything's connected. Everything's connected. It's a very uh, spiritual way of looking at the world uh, where you... Have to win proxy wars in one place to win your proxy wars elsewhere, right? You know, so it's like a it's a like it's like a holistic neocon approach. It
0: is. It's almost yeah. Buddhist. with yeah. A little, little spoiler alert for a story we're getting into yeah. later on, but yeah, it is a Buddhist.
1: So congratulations to Kevin McCarthy on seeing the light and coming around uh, to the Ukraine proxy war and saying we have to win uh, because somehow winning in Ukraine, which means bleeding more Ukrainians and Russians, translates to a win in China, which I think means the ability to bleed China and of course Taiwan in the process.
0: Gosh, do Republicans suck.
1: All right, what do we have for Isn't That Weird?
0: So for Isn't That Weird, we have a, a, a story that's almost a terrible story because it really involves a violation of trust. This story comes out of Knoxville where um, a Knoxville Zoo has been called out for having a pit bull disguised as a lion. As you can see, if we zoom in, That is an adorable pit bull wearing a lion mane. I guess it could be a lion with some kind of uh, congenital deformity, but I don't think that's true. And if we go to the next uh, slide in this image uh, carousel, you can see people are extremely angry. Uh, Someone uh, commented, Knoxville Zoo, count your FK apostrophe N days. I want my money back. This is no FKN lion. T.F. And uh, this p- very responsible citizen documented images of this absolutely adorable pug, but who is by no means a lion. I mean, look <laughs> at that tail. That's a dog tail.
1: <laughs> so. I like it. I like it. Because why should a lion be kept in captivity in the middle of Knoxville or anywhere?
0: Right. Doesn't I guess make sense.
1: Whereas this pit bull, you know, it looks like, I mean, they shouldn't be in captivity either. But it's it probably looks like, happy. Yeah. I mean, a pit bull is probably happier in that space than a lion would be. Right. So, This to me is a, you know, this is like an animal rights issue. And I I say, put on a wig and let's get more fake lions out there.
0: Not just lions. Why not all, all animals?
1: Sure. Put the pit balls in for all of them. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Or yeah. Pit ball. How would you do like a pit bull whale? That would be a little hard.
1: There's got to be a way. There's got to be a way.
0: For Aaron, it's an, isn't that encouraging and a teachable moment?
1: Isn't that socially conscious? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that woke? Isn't that ethical?
0: so what do we got for isn't that terrible
1: (laughs) isn't that terrible we have an awkward story which is that uh well here's the headline from cnn the dalai lama has apologized after a video emerged showing the spiritual leader kissing a child on the lips and then asking him to suck my tongue at an event and we're not going to show the video because it's disturbing it's disturbing and people have seen it but
0: uh, on purpose i don't want to see it yeah
1: yeah um but it's awkward and it's gross. It is. Uh, it's terrible. Dalai Lama is 87 years old asking a young boy to suck his tongue. I mean, it's it's awful. Uh, but it's awkward because, you know, Dalai Lama is revered around the world. People flock to see him when he comes to speak. He meets with luminaries like, I don't know, George W. Bush and Bono. And, um, he's but it's his just holiness.
0: Kind of, his holiness. his holiness, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. But it's a reminder, you know, and this is awkward for someone who's so revered, who's referred to as his holiness, that the Dalai Lama, is he's a shady character. He is. I I hate to say it. I I don't want to take away from those who derive meaning from his Buddhist teachings. But, you know, in terms of his practices and his political alliances, they're weird. And this is an opportunity to talk about them. By the way, you know, the fact he said suck my tongue. As a kid, one of my favorite albums was Blood Sugar Sex Magic by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And they had a song called Suck My Kiss. Right. And I just thought it was so funny that <laughs> maybe he's a fan. You think maybe he's a fan? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was thinking it'd be cool if they did if the, if the Chili's did like a, you know, because it's actually 30 years since that album. So if they perfect like
0: a, opportunity a, for a re a cover,
1: a yeah, self-cover. A collab, yeah. 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 A
0: collab. Yeah.
1: Suck my tongue featuring the Dalai Lama.
0: Right. Featuring H H D L.
1: Yeah. But look, since we're on the topic of the Dalai Lama, here's some more interesting facts about him, including that uh, he has been a CIA asset. Uh, this comes from Caitlin Johnstone. Uh, she points this out. Uh, there was a time starting in the late 1950s when the CIA was paying the Dalai Lama $15,000 a month. And that's basically it's a long story, but basically the CIA saw Tibet as a uh, vehicle through which it could destabilize China. And so the Dalai Lama was put on the payroll of the CIA for $15,000. And, you know, some supporters of the Dalai Lama say that this has been misinterpreted, but that's the claim that's out there. And then there's this, this comes from Boots Riley, who says this about the Dalai Lama. He's quoting an article in The Guardian. Boots Riley says that according to this article, the Dalai Lama and other llamas controlled enslaved serfs and kidnapped kids to force them into his personal dance troupe. I haven't looked into this one, but that's apparently what's out there. Wow! And fi- and finally, here's a clip of the Dalai Lama speaking about whether or not a woman could become the next Dalai Lama. Could it
3: be a woman?
0: One reporter uh, uh, come to see me. I think, I think more than I think, 50 years ago, is she asked me any possibility female Dalai Lama? Then I mentioned, why not? And then I I, I, I told is that reporter. If female Dalai Lama come, the face must be very, very, should be very attractive.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I so, so so you can only have a female Dalai Lama if they're attractive. Is that what you're saying? You can't have... I mean, if female Dalai Lama come, then right. that female
0: Will be must, attractive. must be very M- attractive. Otherwise, not much it's use. Gonna,
1: really?
3: <laughs> no, uh, I, I think some people, my face... You're joking, I'm oh, assuming. Oh. Or but, you're not joking. Oh. Huh? no I mean, I mean true
2: you once said that you would um, be open to uh, a female successor
4: that also possible
2: you also told um, one of my colleagues that that female must be attractive otherwise it's not much use
4: okay, okay, yes can you see so that, why that, that comment that, upset uh, a lot of women there's one time if female dilemma comes and should be more attractive if female dilemma Oh, oh God, <laughs> dead people I think prefer not see uh, a dead face.
2: Yes, a lot of women would say that's
0: objectifying women and it's about who you are inside, isn't it? Yes, I think both. Wow, <laughs> so I kind of was ready to forgive him the first time because I thought maybe he got carried away in the humour, not that it was funny, but he does he not have a PR person to tell him like, okay, say that you were just joking? maybe even apologize or maybe he's not, he doesn't like apologizing because he's his holiness, but you could just say it was a joke.
1: Yes. And here's the thing. It's like, you know, I, in these situations, I do think people in who that don't come from the same cultures. Like, so, you know, he's from a different culture. So we have to be gracious and that people see things differently. They don't, sure. you know, we're raised with different cultural sensibilities and, and, and manners. So we have to allow some room for people to, have, um, things that might sound distasteful here, but are totally normal elsewhere. But he just, it's funny, he seems very explicit in saying the Dalai Lama, if female has to be attractive.
0: Right. Wow. Well, you know, this is a story that's especially, um, close to me because as you know, my parents have a dog, my beloved Bodhi dog, who is an adorable Lhasa Apsa and Lhasa Apsas are Tibetan. Mm. They were uh, bred to protect Tibetan monks in monasteries. Now they're very little and they're not very strong. So they were part of like a duo of protection. They have very good hearing. So whenever they heard someone like a bandit or something approaching, they would start barking and then the big Tibetan massive dogs would go on the attack. Mm. Not only that though, uh, you know, Buddhists believe in reincarnation and they believe that in the stages of reincarnation, a dog Often comes right before a human, and the souls of llamas or priests are frequently reborn as lasa apsas just before they are reborn as humans.
1: So, Bodhi could be the next Dalai Lama,
0: yeah, basically. Yeah, and she's very attractive. She's a woman, actually, yeah. she's a and, female and, dog. Yeah, well, there we go. Um, I think that I think the Dali HHDL would approve of her, <laughs>
1: okay? She's beautiful. All right, well, I'm looking forward to see Bodhi as the next yeah. Dalai Lama, uh, yeah, and uh. Maybe Bodie will break the tradition of sucking on boys' tongues. All right, well, those are your four basic food groups. So for this week's guest, we are joined by Jacob Siegel. He is a senior editor at Tablet. And he's out with a new piece, it's called A Guide to Understanding the Hoax of the Century, 13 Ways of Looking at Disinformation.
0: Let's go to the interview.
1: Jacob Siegel, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Your article on Tablet is called A Guide to Understanding the Hoax of the Century, 13 Ways of Looking at Disinformation. Let's start with the word itself, disinformation. Where did it come from? And how come, When did it start becoming such a huge thing in the United States?
4: So it's been a huge thing twice. It comes from uh, the Cold War and from the Soviet term desinformatsia, which I'm sure I've mispronounced. So during the Cold War, it's a fairly well-known concept, a fairly well-known tactic that refers to both kind of obvious battlefield deceptions, um, what you might think of as tactical or operational deceptions, and then also has a broader meaning in which it refers to essentially politicized propaganda campaigns. And then it largely disappears. And, uh, you know, at the end of the Cold War, there's not as much interest in these, um, these kinds of spy versus spy terms and concepts where there had once been, I think, uh, some general popular familiarity with them. It goes away. It's revived by a related concept, and that is hybrid war and this concept of hybrid war really becomes popularized in the NATO and western defense establishment in 2014 around the time of Russia's invasion of Crimea, the Euromaidan uh, movement and and uh, also in largely in reference to Russia, but this idea of hybrid war which refers to a combination of conventional and covert military tactics and explicitly to the idea of information operations being blended into conventional warfare tactics and becoming more important, um, and this is the Garamanzev doctrine um, that much is made of, particularly around the 2014, around the time of the Crimea and Ukraine stuff, and so it begins to re-enter the popular understanding through these NATO papers, Western security experts who start talking about this, um, start talking about the new way of Russian warfare. And then there's a turn to disinformation that really begins around the time that the Trump campaign takes off. So you have hybrid warfare sort of bleeding into um, this very broad, very amorphous use of disinformation and information warfare as a sort of catch all for these, uh, putatively, uh, Russian tactics. And, and in fact, you know, Russia does employ, um, many of these tactics, as does the United States, as do many other countries. They're neither new nor especially novel, but that's how disinformation re enters popular usage. It's through a hybrid war.
0: And your piece, which is excellent, and is called The Hoax of the A Guide to Understand uh, the Hoax of the Century. What is, and I and I read it, but can you crystallize what the hoax is?
4: The hoax is the idea that uh, the United States is under attack from disinformation and liberal democracy can only be saved by uh, giving up our constitutional rights and entrusting technocratic experts, um, you know, the same experts who told us that Donald Trump was a Putin agent and that anybody who claimed that COVID-19 might have come from a laboratory was a racist, racist conspiracy theorist. That's the hoax. The hoax is that there is an imminent existential threat that uh, we're all facing imminent peril and that the only way out of this catastrophe is through the giving up of our constitutional protections and um, entrusting the information experts, many of whom not coincidentally happen to be holdovers from the long war on terror. That's the hoax.
0: And how does your experience in the military influence the way you understand this technocracy?
4: Yeah. I mean, I, my experience in the military was not especially, you know, I didn't do anything special or I, I didn't have access to any high level stuff. I spent my, the whole time in, in uh, basically infantry battalions. So at a, a fairly low level in operational terms, I never was up in the puzzle palaces or anything like that. So the way that this connects is um, really a, It was my experience in Afghanistan in 2012, where I was the intelligence officer for an infantry battalion during a period in which much emphasis was placed on training the Afghan National Security Forces in order to transition uh, one region, then another region, which would eventually allow the U.S. to withdraw from Afghanistan. And what I saw at the time was that the reports being delivered on the Um, competence and abilities of the Afghan National Security Forces were just wholesale fabrications. And that was something that was being done in a top-down manner, because essentially, the sort of strategic directives that were calling for these transitions dictated that there had to be uh, degree of sort of fudging these reports. And of course, all of this is later explicitly confirmed in the Afghanistan papers that the Washington Post publishes uh, come out of these um, after action review reports with high level um, Pentagon officials and military officers who are referring to, um, you know, the, the fact that Afghanistan was a a war in which we knew nothing about the country, that uh, we were in. We had no clear concept of victory, certainly no path to victory. And it was what I believe was an army colonel referred to as a a self-licking ice cream cone, which is, you know, a a great phrase. So I saw all that. And at the same time, I saw the way that there was the sort of all powerful information control system that was growing alongside a strategic picture that only ever got more opaque, where the the reasons we were in Afghanistan not only no longer made any sense, they hadn't made sense for quite some time, in my opinion, but nobody was really, nobody felt compelled to even address that anymore. It wasn't really a problem. And one of the ways that the military bureaucracy and the political leadership of the United States, I would say, found to avoid addressing these very fundamental questions of why are we at war? What are we trying to accomplish was by mastering what, uh, you know, is called the information space through the acquisition of bulk data, the same same kind of thing that, you know, we learned about through the, the Snowden leaks, but um, here without any legal restrictions because it's a war. So it's just let's acquire all of the data that we can get And then this strange thing happens Uh, when you feed the data into these centralized databases, it ends up taking on, you know, the sort of, like, I don't want to sound mystical or, or like uh, woo woo about it, but you start to look at these databases as if they, they have the answers. Um, And if only you can, you know, sort of manipulate the data in the right way, like the whole war is there, you know, and, and, it's this confusion between map and territory, and so I had observed that, and it it's, it festered. I mean, I I understood that something had gone terribly wrong in Afghanistan, and that the the databases had both prolonged that catastrophe, had prolonged that that terrible uh, series of of strategic failures and blunders and had sort of obscured it in a very fundamental way. And um, I mean, I, ho- hopefully that, that uh, there are some implicit connections there, but I can make them more explicit if you'd like. Well,
0: I, l- I would like your, you wrote, I have observed reflecting on my experiences as a U.S. Army intelligence officer in Afghanistan, how data analytics tools at the fingertips of anyone with access to an operation center or situation room seem to promise the imminent convergence of map and territory, but ended up becoming a trap as US forces could measure thousands of different things that we couldn't understand. We tried to cover for that deficit by acquiring even more data. I love that uh, that line about you could measure thousands of different things that we couldn't understand. And that seems to be something that we see with the disinformation as well, where there's this obsession with technocracy and data without necessarily understanding what it means, but also it, in this case, it seems like it's not just without understanding, but it becomes a shield. Like people would just point to this many Facebook ads, this much money, but they wouldn't prove the case of how that influence allegedly influenced the election. But people are, we have this cult of technocracy so that people are just so impressed by data. And then there's no real burden of, of actually, you don't have to make the case, you just show that you have data.
4: Yeah, that's very well put. Um, you don't have to make the case either in, in war or in politics, and perhaps those are blurring. Um, and the, the data seems to provide the means to control human populations. And it doesn't work in the way that it's supposed to. It certainly didn't work in that way in Afghanistan, where, again, we understood basically nothing. Um, I'm not just talking about myself. You know, I was, again, I I was nobody important. I was a low level guy who did nothing important. But I I had brushed, uh, you know, I had contact with people who were somewhat important, at least they didn't know anything either. Basically, nobody knew anything about Afghanistan. And the longer we stayed in Afghanistan, it seems the less we knew about Afghanistan and something similar could be said about the relationship between the sort of techno surveillance apparatus in the United States and um, Americans, um, the more domineering the techno surveillance apparatus becomes, the more convinced its masters become of the fundamental illegitimacy, unsuitability of the American population for democracy and self government. And they come to be looked at as, you know, something like either potential extremists, domestic extremists, on the one hand, or sort of uh, clay to be molded on the other hand. And of course, you know, those things go together, because what do the extremists need? They need um, a more um, they they need a more correctly managed information space to feed them the right ideas to disabuse them of these terrible notions they have that uh, lead them to you know resist getting vaccines or voting for the wrong people or whatever the case may be and uh, yeah so so I think you you stated it very well there
1: so a uh, key development that you identify in your article in. The making of this uh, disinformation complex is when the Obama administration, near the end of its um, second term, creates something called the State Department's Global Engagement Center. And we've seen this Global Engagement Center come up a lot in the Twitter files, uh, the reporting that Matt Taibbi has done. Talk to us about that and the role it's played in um, spreading the fear mongering about disinformation and in the process, spreading disinformation itself. So uh, I'm going to forget the the
4: precise initial name for the Global Engagement Center, but its early name had something, and I I cite this in the piece. So if people look at the piece on Tablet Magazine, they'll see it. But the Global Engagement Center grows out of a State Department agency, which originally has a name explicitly tying it to counterterrorism. And it's basically a strategic counterterrorism sort of counter-messaging center. And this is important because it's this turn in the American counterterrorism establishment away from, um, let's say, the sort of kinetic targeting and drone strike side and toward the seemingly more progressive, certainly more palatable to the sort of Obama audience counter messaging side. And so you have the State Department agency that starts off directly, explicitly a Uh, counter-terrorism center headed by a former Navy SEAL named Michael Lumpkin, who comes out of the counter-terrorism and specifically the counter-messaging side of counter-terrorism world in his uh, sort of immediately previous posts. And it precedes the, uh, let's call it the official launch of the war on disinformation, because it has this previous incarnation in the war on terror, but that's very telling because it shows the way in which there's this essential continuity between the two of them. The next important step that occurs is in uh, December 2016, when as one of his last acts in office, President Obama signs the Countering Foreign Disinformation uh, Act as part of the 2017 NDAA, the Defense Appropriations. And this uh, creates this sort of new iteration uh, of the Global Engagement Center um, in which its primary mission is countering, at the time, foreign disinformation. And, you know, disinformation is still a quite a new concept at the time. This doesn't get a lot of attention. There are some, you know, whispers from civil libertarians expressing some very uh, kind of muted concerns. But this is happening in the midst of, you know, the sort of insane reaction to Trump's election. And it it just doesn't get that much attention. And certainly, you know, I didn't recognize its import at the time. And I think um, most people didn't pay much attention to it. But the Global Engagement Center becomes the primary hub in the, what is now the all important US war against disinformation, which is explicitly, in the words of the GEC itself, a whole of society effort, what I refer to as a national mobilization, um, because this is, you know, it's, it is explicitly organized along the lines of a war. Um, It's a whole of society effort, just as you would find in the war on terror, uh, just as you found in the Cold War. And what that means is that it is bringing together the most powerful, most influential sectors of society. That means uh, the social media platforms where this new information war is being fought. That also means the uh, funders, uh, you know, financial sector funders. It means significantly the NGOs that become very important because um, there's a soon to be an explosion of new NGOs addressing themselves to the supposedly existential threat of disinformation, which are effectively part of a uh, military operation to fight disinformation. So all of this happens as one of Uh, You know, right as President Obama is leaving office and under the cloud of these new uh, claims that at the time are still sort of, you know, still being worked out. It's it's not even clear exactly what people are saying about Donald Trump and his connections to the Kremlin, because this is this is before the uh, the. Uh, Aaron, you know this stuff better than I do. It's the ICA. Is that the correct acronym? The intelligence intelligence community
1: community assessment. Yeah,
4: right. But
1: it wasn't, in fact, the 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 intelligence community. It was a a group of hand-picked analysts by John Brennan of the CIA uh, working a, a small number of people. But the way it gets portrayed, and this is a huge act of disinformation, it gets portrayed as the consensus of the intelligence community when it wasn't. So I, I don't
4: refer to this stuff as disinformation because um, I just think the term itself is deliberately obscurantist and technocratic yeah. and it's propaganda. Everybody knows what propaganda means. It's propaganda. Mm-hmm. And there's yeah. this like weird recursive quality when you talk about disinformation and it's it just obscures more than it reveals. But yeah, so the the ICA comes out. And so now... We're told the American public is told that Vladimir Putin uh, explicitly, you know, not only intervened in the 2016 election but explicitly backed Donald Trump. And as you point out, Aaron, this is not an actually an intelligence community assessment at all. It's Brennan handpicking people, excluding. Those Russia experts in uh, intelligence agencies who had actually determined that, no, Putin preferred Clinton because she was more predictable and Trump was a wild card. But what that does, what these two things happening essentially in tandem does, is it creates this what appears to be a genuine existential threat and crisis. I mean, if indeed the president of the United States is a Kremlin agent. That's pretty bad. That would indeed, um, you know, perhaps justify something like a massive information war launched by the United States, directed internally. Because if the if the Kremlin has already gotten inside the White House, how do you deal with that? If not by uh, you know sort of purging this dangerous information or disinformation from within. So that's the connection. And just the final thing I would say about the GEC is that from very early on, if you read what Lumpkin is saying, and I quote him to this effect in the tablet piece from very early on, when he's talking about uh, the threat of disinformation and when he's talking about the threat of terrorism and the terms are, you know, almost um, identical, he is arguing that Privacy protections are hampering the effort to fight this um, dire threat to the United States and that legal and constitutional protections that make distinctions between American citizens and, you know, uh, citizens of other countries are are essentially hamstringing the intelligence community and the military. And that if we want to get serious about fighting terrorism and disinformation, we need to evolve beyond these sort of obsolete things like the Bill of Rights. Though He doesn't say that explicitly. That's sort of the implication. And it's what others will say later.
0: Well, a lot of people say, oh, the Twitter files don't reveal anything. They don't reveal any censorship. All they reveal is Biden didn't want his son's penis to be revealed what's your response to that and to hear the rest of the interview please go to usefulidiots.substack.com
1: well that was great and i think that's going to be a hit with our audience because we know that useful idiots fans love a good takedown of the disinformation industry
0: yeah it was great and you're definitely going to want to see the rest of it at Substack.com or usefulidiots.locals.com. Also, here's a reminder to make sure that you subscribe to us on YouTube or Rumble. It's up to you. That's at youtube.com slash Idiots, rumble.com slash Idiots, And please do rate and review this podcast.
1: And make sure to friend us on Friendster. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.
0: Bye. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday morning show where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so
1: you don't have to watch them.